0: Personal Bloomer Letter arrived too late for last Wednesday. We'll see you same time and place on Wednesday twelfth instant. HMB Blonde and Brunette, the two young ladies seen at Barb Blue in Fifth Avenue Stage and Delmonico's on Monday evening, would confer a favor on party that sat at table near them by addressing Rotorer Brothers. Herald Office Carey received note in pencil on sixth. Last name blurred and indefinite. Replied same day. Surmise it's non receipt, probably advertised as addressed. Write again. three. Consulate of Peru, number twenty six and a half Broadway, New York. Mr Bartolome Velarde. Formerly a photographist in Lima, who married a Miss Allen of Buffalo, and Mr. Thomas R. Eldridge of Peru, who, when last heard from, was engaged in Philadelphia as a civil engineer, will learn of something to their advantage by calling on or sending their address to J.C. Tracy, Consul of Peru. Darling, does Kitty ever pout? Don't spoil her curly brown locks with cologne. Gigi loves her as much as you love him. Come to your sugar nigger. Oh, he spices the air with the greatest of ease. A daring young man on the night hi there this is Hugh Yeman and you're listening to historic headlines the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100 and 150 years ago this week there's too much confusion I can't get no relief hey there and welcome to episode 25. Last time, we started the process of unpacking that fabulous Harper's Weekly cartoon from the end of September, 1868, called All the Difference in the World. In this episode, I'm going to take a break from the southern newspaper reports of Democratic barbecues and balls and look in on a single remarkable page of the New York Daily Herald. Almost the entire page, page is devoted to Democratic barbecues and balls and other events relating to the upcoming presidential election. This is the page that really sent me down that rabbit hole. It's the one that made me realize that this was a phenomenon of genuine historical significance. But before I wade into that page, there's something I want to talk to you about. Why am I doing this? I feel like that's a question I haven't addressed sufficiently. I often operate on the mistaken assumption that other people's brains work like mine, and so they're making the same assumptions that I am, and what's clear to me is clear to them. And periodically I find out that, yeah, no one knew what I was talking about because of those tacit assumptions. So why am I doing this? Well, short version, I don't want all this work to go to waste. Long version? I grew up in a racist family. And I have dipped my toe into activism in the past, although I hesitate to use the word activism. I feel that only the people who have been out on the streets risking something deserve that appellation. End of the day, all I ever did was blog. But even then, I never tackled racism, because I always felt that racism was bigger than me. I got to know that monster from the inside growing up, and... Attacking it was unfathomable. I'd never imagined that I could put a dent in it. So I went down this historical newspaper rabbit hole, and the deeper I got, the more flabbergasted I became at the discoveries that I was making. I'm still just beginning to be shocked by the extent of pro-slavery sentiment in the North, not to mention that The vast majority of people who weren't pro-slavery didn't want anything to do with abolitionism. And now this phenomenon of democratic barbecues and balls in 1868 has me enthralled. And it's for the same reason. I hear echoes. When I read these words, I hear them echoing loud in the rhetoric, in the discourse, in the lack of discourse that we have today. And I find it maddening that I didn't know about this stuff, that I wasn't taught this stuff. I want this to be known. I keep going back to what I said at the beginning of the first episode. I look at these words and I want to give them full throat because these words deserve to be heard. Understand that when I say deserve, I mean this vileness, this twisted rhetoric, this boring material interspersed with and marbled with horrific race baiting. It deserves to be heard because we owe it to ourselves never to forget where our current rhetoric, our current refusal to have a dialectic, it comes from this, this never ended. We are still fighting the same battles we were 150 years ago. And I want people to see this. And hey, I might as well, because I'm doing the work anyway. I'm enthralled. I'm fascinated. And I don't want that to go to waste. So, if you know any journalists, any journalism students, any authors, any teachers, any activists who could use this material, please, send them my way. On a lighter note, you'll find that this episode marks an upgrade in my audio cues. I've always felt a conflict between my desire to interject and explain things and my desire to let the articles stand on their own and speak for themselves. And yesterday I realized that I could largely mitigate that problem by using audio cues. For starters, you'll find that this sound marks the beginning of a quote or the beginning of an inset article within the framing article. And this sound marks the end of a quote or in said article. I think that's going to make things a hell of a lot clearer. But that's just a start. I'm also going to be using audio cues for historically significant people and for rhetorical devices. Now initially it's going to have the net result of slowing things down as I introduce the audio cues, but by the time I get a few more episodes under my belt, I think things will be running much more smoothly, and the podcast will be clearer and more engaging. Oh, and before we start, please, follow that link in the show notes, get a load of that magnificent Harper's Weekly illustration, and if you like, follow the link to the New York Herald page and read along. As you let this wall of newsprint wash over you, think about how racial vitriol serves as the cement for the bricks of rhetoric. Alright, here we go. The Campaign. The Situation in Georgia and Tennessee. The Colored Democracy of the South in the Field, Speeches of Prominent Politicians, General Political News, Political Affairs in Georgia, Effects of Mr. Toombs' Recent Speech. There's your audio cue for Robert Toombs. You know, the sound of a tomb door opening. Eh, little lame, I know. But hey, I can't give every person a distinct bell or buzzer sound. That would get really boring. Anyway, Robert Toombs, boy, are you going to hear more from him. This is important because, as you'll notice, this article scolds Toombs for the detrimental effect he's having on the Democratic Party by stumping for the Democrats. So, this is a great way to explore and delineate the Boundaries of Democratic Ideology at the Time. Back to the article. The Political Situation in Georgia and the South. Good Feeling Between Negroes and Whites. Anxiety for the Main Election. Atlanta, August 7, 1868. Despite the efforts of the Democratic papers here to conceal the effect of Mr. Robert Toome's recent speech at the mass meeting in this city, it is quite evident that the great majority of the conservatives are mortified at the expressions used in some portions of it. Still, it surprised nobody who is at all conversant with the past history of the very eloquent and able, though erratic, orator. Mr. Toombs never understood and seldom practiced the virtue of moderation. His entire political life has been one of warfare on his own as well as the opposing party, which singularity of conduct was never more plainly exemplified than in his efforts first to dissolve the Union and subsequently his row with the Confederate authorities. So far as his anxiety for another fight is concerned, nobody notices what he says on the subject. He certainly was not guilty of a very remarkable share of fighting in the recent rebellion, nor is it at all likely that he would shoulder a musket should another civil war break out. It is to be regretted that Mr. Toomes should be so determined upon learning nothing from the events of the past eight years, as he is a most estimable gentleman personally and a man of fine ability. It must be apparent to him, however, as it happily is to nine-tenths of the white citizens of Georgia, that the day of his influence is over. Robert Toombs is as politically dead as is Joseph E. Brown. And that will be your audio cue for Joe Brown. Apparently that sound is called brown noise, which I only found out after I searched for the word brown on a free mp3 download site. Hey, it's a lot better than the fart sound that I was originally going to use. Hey, it can't be just me, right? I mean, what would you have thought of when thinking of a sound effect for the name brown? Anyway, Joe Brown is a name you'll be hearing in upcoming episodes. For right now, just know that Georgia super hated this guy because he supported radical reconstruction policies. So, back to the article. With regard to the speech of General Howell Cobb, Remember, the whole thing sounds a so darn <laughs> That, folks, is your audio cue for Howell Cobb. I tried to come up with a sound that was associated with Cobb. I thought of corn cobs, which really don't make any noise that I can think of. So, I was drawing a blank, and then I noticed that his first name was Howell, which made me think of Mr. Howell from Gilligan's Island. Went to YouTube, and the first video I found had Mr. Howell saying, I mean, the whole thing sounds so darn democratic. And since Cobb is stumping for the Democrats here, I figured, hey, divine providence. So, Howell Cobb. You'll be hearing a lot more from him, too. He, along with Toombs, will help us explore that democratic ideology. Anyway, back to it. With regard to the speech of General Howell Cobb, I think that his sentiments have been much misconstrued in the North. He did, it is true, denounce with much force and bitterness the carpetbag state government and carpetbag congressmen that have been elected from some of the Georgia districts and from every part of the South but a careful reading of what he said will show that his remarks were not applied to all northern men who have come here since the war closed. I have good reason for believing that Mr. Cobb would heartily welcome a large influx of population from the northern states, no matter what the political opinions of the newcomers are. But is it not natural that he should suggest the impropriety, to use no stronger term, of men running for office who have not resided in the state three months? No unprejudiced man who visits this section of the country and witnesses the utter mockery of Republican government in every part of the South can fail to feel indignant and disgusted with the entire horde of carpetbaggers who now fill every office by the votes of ignorant Negroes. Against these miserable leeches upon the people, General Cobb hurled his denunciations, but not against any others. I mention this merely as an act of justice to the general, who has honestly accepted the result of the war and means to abide by that result. The political situation in this state is very interesting and the indications are that if Georgia is permitted to take part in the presidential election, she will be carried by an overwhelming majority for the Democratic candidates. The most marked features in the campaign so far are the immense activity and enthusiasm of the conservatives and the utter apathy and apparent hopelessness of the radicals. Numerous meetings are being held in different parts of the state every day, which are largely attended not only by whites, but also by immense numbers of Negroes. The organization of colored conservative clubs has become a perfect rage. The number of Negro Democrats in one county thus organized reaching nearly 1,200. Free barbecues under the management of the State Executive Committee are being held at the rate of five or six every week, they being attended by large concourses of Negroes, varying from five to fifteen thousand strong. At these gatherings any quantity of edibles are consumed, the Negroes meantime hurrahing for Seymour and Blair. Alright, let's take those two new audio cues one at a time. First, there's this. That's the sound for Horatio Seymour. You get my associative chain, right? Horatio Seymour, Horatio Hornblower, horn. Seymour is, of course, the Democratic presidential candidate in 1868, so you'll be hearing a lot more about him. If you want to hear more now, check out episode 8. He occupies a prominent position in that one, and he appears a little bit in episode 13. And second, we have... You know what that was? That was the Blair horn for Francis Preston Blair Jr., vice presidential candidate. Huh? Huh? It is blaring, you gotta admit. Anyway, where was I? Ah, yes. The Negroes meantime hurrying for Seymour and Blair and groaning for the radical ticket and party. This is very ludicrous to think of, but it is a fact. Competent judges and men well acquainted with the sentiments of the Negroes estimate that of their ninety six thousand votes, at least forty thousand will be cast for the Democratic ticket. And if to these figures be added the seventy five or eighty thousand white votes, which will assuredly be cast the same way, it will be seen that Georgia is almost certain to be carried by the conservatives by perhaps not less than forty thousand majority. Some few radicals here try to convince themselves that the result will be different, but the more honest among them frankly admit that the only question is as to how large the majority against them will be. What has been written of this state can be applied to every southern state. Even in South Carolina, the Democrats boast they will carry the state by 10,000 if the legislature does not take the election from the people. This has already been done in Alabama and Florida, and I should not be surprised if the legislatures of all the southern states, except this, enact laws looking to the same end. There is nothing in the political line so plainly evident as the utter panic of the radical leaders at the extensive desertions of their Negro allies. If we take the county of Chatham, in this state, as an example, this defection will become all the more apparent— There, at the election for governor, no Negro could vote the Democratic ticket unless escorted to the polls by white men, all armed and ready to protect the conservative darky at the risk of their own lives. Today, there are several colored Democratic clubs in Savannah which meet openly without fear, transact business, admit new members, and express their political sentiments unreservedly and plainly. At every meeting, their numbers are increased, and now three out of every four Negroes who apply for work produce their badges and certificates as proof positive that they intend to vote with dar white friends. It is this Entente Corjal, this good feeling, this disposition to support each other, now exhibited by the two races, that has caused the radical panic. And it is this also, I believe, that has produced the recent letter of Governor Warmouth of Louisiana. And that's your audio cue for Henry Clay Warmouth, Reconstruction Governor of Louisiana. You'll be hearing that sound a lot because it's hard to open up a newspaper from 1868 without seeing that name. Warmoth was born and raised in Illinois, set up a legal practice in Missouri, fought for the Union during the Civil War, moved to New Orleans after the war in order to practice law and get into politics, and successfully ran for governor in 1868. He was young, he was from the North, and he actively pursued reconstruction, which made him one of the more hated figures in politics in the South, more or less the embodiment of the carpetbagger. His last name was spelled W-A-R-M-O-T-H, but in the newspapers of this time, it was frequently misspelled as W-A-R-M-O-U-T-H. So when I was trying to think of a mnemonic, I was thinking along the lines of war sounds and mouth sounds, but that would be goofy even by my standards. So I racked my brain and eventually hit on the idea of migratory birds. Let's see if I can find a bird that's native to Illinois, or at least spends a good deal of time in Illinois and migrates to Louisiana. And I came up with the Louisiana water thrush. Hey, I hope all zero of you appreciate all the work I'm doing for you. Now, a couple things to know as you listen to this paragraph. Warmoth had just written a letter to the president asking for help against the burgeoning KKK. Yep, as this article is being published, the Ku Klux Klan is getting on its feet in the South. Anyway, on with the article. I state here on my own responsibility that I have reason to believe it is a part of the radical plan of campaign to manufacture just such stories of rebel atrocities for the purpose of inflaming the northern mind against the people of the south. Certain circumstances have transpired here which influence this opinion, and I predict in advance that before six weeks have passed there will be reports from every southern state of outrages on original Union men, nine-tenths of whom, by the way, are the bitterest opponents of the radical policy. Of course I can offer no opinion as to the truth or falsity of Governor Warmoth's letter— But it is certain that prominent Democrats in northern Louisiana challenge him to mention 15 murders committed in that part of the state during the past month instead of the 150 he refers to. The Kentucky election has not caused a ripple in the political waters. That the state would go Democratic was certain, and an unusually heavy majority was anticipated. The great anxiety is for the main election, which takes place next month. No one here expects the Democrats to carry the state, but all are hoping that they will either reduce the Republican majority of last year or hold their own. Hugh here cutting in with two notes. First, keep in mind that, again, as this is being published, the KKK is getting on its feet, in Tennessee. Second, in this article you'll hear about a memorial to the legislature. If you're like me, that'll be confusing because memorial has connotations that probably don't apply in this case. I did some digging in newspaper articles when I first read about this, and that phrase memorial to the legislature comes up here and there, and it doesn't seem to have the same connotations of funeral Memorials that we have in our heads. It seemed to apply more or less to any appeal from the constituency. All right, here it is Tennessee. Legislative Remarks of Ex Governor Foote. The Troubles in Tennessee, having called forth a memorial to the legislature from ex Confederate generals denying that they sought the overthrow of the government of the state by revolutionary or any other lawless means and the memorial having been presented to that body, ex-Governor Foote spoke upon the subject as follows. Gentlemen of the legislature of Tennessee, you are now dealing with the most vital concerns of a brave, a high-minded, a virtuous and intelligent people. Upon your action depend their liberties, their rights of property, their present peace, and their future security. They are patient, law-abiding, orderly, just, magnanimous, grateful for kindness, grateful even for justice shown them, oblivious to injuries when once fairly atoned for, always prepared to reciprocate benefits with superior benefits. Oh, treat them as they deserve to be treated. I will not believe that it is more than merely possible for you to treat them otherwise. I cannot believe that you will coldly refuse their earnest prayer for freedom, that you will organize a military force for their oppression when nothing of the sort is needed, and insultingly refuse to trust to their present solemn protestations of peacefulness and obedience to the law. May God give you wisdom to act your parts becomingly and honorably in this most rough and perilous conjuncture. Those who subscribed the memorial were sincere in the declarations made by them. They are honest men and patriots. They had declared themselves to be in favor of equal rights the sacred preservation of all vested interests, the maintenance of the laws of the land, the upholding of peace and order, the rendition of justice to all men. What could they say more? They were opposed to violence and lawlessness by whomsoever committed. They were in favor of restoring general amity and brotherhood. They were opposed to all that could generate feelings of rancorous unkindness in the bosoms of any portion of our citizens, to all that would be calculated to keep alive jealousies, perpetual distrust, alienate particular classes of our citizens from other classes, renew dissension and strife, or enkindle the flames of civil war. The memorialists desired peace, general goodwill, a magnanimous oblivion of all in the past that would serve to renovate feelings of hostility, the hearty union of our people, and of our whole people in all that was of a nature to promote the common happiness and advance the general welfare. That's your audio cue for, oh, that happened in the past, we need to look to the future now. And just like today, in 1868, it came up all the time in conversations about race. Saying, oh, that happened in the past, we need to look to the future, is a great rhetorical trick for convincing yourself that members of another race should just shut up now. When I hear articles like this blathering on about how we should look to the future, all I can think of is Richard III. You know that bit when Richard is all, Bitch, you still talking about how I killed your kids? That was this morning. Get over it. Anyway, back to the article. They desired to see all present misunderstandings healed, all conflicting interests reconciled, all past unkindnesses forgotten. In short, they desired we should be, in future, one people in interest, in rights, in sentiment, bound together by indissoluble ties of good fellowship and true love of country. The memorialists respectfully and earnestly asked a restoration of the precious civic franchises of which they had been deprived. They did not demand this restoration with arms in their hands or in the spirit of revolutionary violence or in language of menace and unkindness. They asked this in the genuine spirit of peace, as men inheriting liberty from a heroic ancestry and regarding it as the most precious heritage which they had derived from this venerated source. They asked it as men overcome in a deplorable civil war, but in which they were not conscious of having done anything to merit perpetual enslavement, They asked this restoration not from some foreign potentate, not from some semi-barbarous conqueror. You hear that? That's the barbarism buzzer. Believe me, you'll be hearing a lot more of that one, too. People were really obsessed with barbarism and semi-barbarism. That was a catchphrase. It keeps coming up in these newspaper articles. All right, starting that sentence again. They asked this restoration not from some foreign potentate, not from some semi-barbarous conqueror, but from their own fellow citizens, from natives of the same beloved country, from civilized and Christian man, from men born to the same liberties with themselves, and bound alike to appreciate their possession and enjoyment, and profoundly to sympathize with those who had been, by the rude chances of war, deprived of that possession and enjoyment. Give us back our franchises, and we will guarantee the quiet of our people, their orderly submission to the laws, the suppression of all violence, the reign of contentment and universal brotherhood and prosperity. Oh, let us, I pray you, have peace let us have social kindness let us have no more organizations secret or open banded together for purpose of injustice of violence and of bloodshed we ask of you our fellow citizens only what all wise and magnanimous conquerors have granted alike in ancient and modern times only what a wise and magnanimous statesmanship would itself voluntarily bestow What, it seems to us, no enlightened friend of civil freedom, such as our countrymen have heretofore boasted of possessing, could reasonably deny. We know that there is no possibility of the work of re-enfranchisement being immediately consummated, but we ask you to lose no time in taking the initiatory step." The distinguished gentleman who presents our memorial is the very Supreme Court judge who some time ago delivered the identical decision affirming the validity of the franchise law, the repeal of which he now nobly unites with us in demanding. Our memorial is subscribed by many of the most zealous Republicans in the state. Oh, gentlemen, I earnestly beseech you, as a friend to peace, as an upholder of justice, as a lover of my country's repose and happiness, to seize at once the glorious opportunity of securing the happiness of your native land and your own immortal fame. Mr. Hamilton, one word, Governor, you have said in your memorial what you want us to do. I now want you to say whether we are not to have peace until your disenfranchisement is removed. Governor Foote. Certainly, we are for peace now, peace hereafter, peace all the time. We are at present in a crippled and feeble state. We have no legal power in our hands. We have no armies at our command. But... All that our forlorn and deplorable condition will allow us to do to maintain the peace and save the law from violation, we promise, in the presence of God and man, our country and the world, the passing generation and of all posterity, to do. Mr. Hamilton, you have not answered my question, whether we are to have peace before or after the franchise is extended. Governor Foote. Now, now. Great applause. I cannot regard the troublous condition of the country as by any means, or at least in any considerable degree, attributable to party feeling or the result of party concert. The people, it is true, are distressed and disquieted at their present sufferings, but the disorderly and violent movements complained of are, I am sure, nearly all of them to be ascribed to other causes." The Situation in the State From the Chattanooga Union, August 8th, Democratic The legislature has now been in session nearly two weeks and neither House has taken any decisive action relating to the purposes for which they were called together. The question of enfranchisement looms up before the members and, notwithstanding their bitter partisanship, forces itself upon their minds as the only solution to the grave problem, whether it is possible to put the finances on a firm basis so as to restore confidence in and outside of the state and, at the same time, call out the militia to suppress the disorders which they claim exist." To organize a force of militia necessitates the creation of a band of thieves in the shape of quartermasters, who will defraud the treasury to a greater extent than ever the actual expenses of the militia would amount to, and not only this, but the passage of such a bill would create distrust among the state creditors, for it is well known that never in the history of the government has the presence of partisan bands of soldiery among oppressed people resulted in aught else but rapine violence, and murder. The legislature cannot, then, accomplish these two measures. Meanwhile, the credit of the state is lowering fast, and the state itself approaching bankruptcy. It would seem that if it were possible to recover the state credit, and at the same time restore peace in all her borders, that honest legislators would willingly vote for such a measure. This can be done by an ordinance looking towards the enfranchisement of the whites by a vote at the polls in November. We have no doubt but that in some parts of the state a few men are acting violently. But is this the fact in West Tennessee, and does not the same state of things exist in East Tennessee, except that there it is the rebels who are persecuted? The great mass of the people of both political parties are quiet and well disposed. Is the legislature afraid of democratic supremacy in the state? Then should they know that it must come in a few years at the farthest. It is as certain as existence. No legislation can be so severe as to prevent it. Will it not be better for the Republican legislature of Tennessee, by their own free will, to restore peace to the state than to go on blindly and infatuated in the face of an inexorable fact? No earthly power can prevent democratic supremacy in this state within 18 months, and the Republican Party have more to gain by conciliatory legislation than by vindictive laws such as the Militia Bill. The Republican Party of the country is on trial for high crimes. Can the Tennessee legislature afford to load the party down with an obnoxious law certain to drive tens of thousands of northern voters into the ranks of the democracy? Historic headlines will return after this word from our sponsors. Francis Jessup. Eldest son of Frederick Joseph Jessup, of Drury Hall, Ireland, is requested to send his address to W. Gleason, 114 Nassau Street, New York, immediately. F. S. Personal of Saturday answered immediately. Letter at Herald Office. Please reply and oblige. Laurie. H. Will pay $500 for articles on corruption, etc. in CH. Cannot find you. Call soon. Tribune. If James J. Gilbert is in the city and will send his address to Union Square Post Office, he will hear of something to his advantage. Miss F. Franklin information wanted of john cairns is about thirteen years and six months old has light hair soft and thick pleasant countenance and a great stoppage in his speech or stutters had on, when he left home, blue-cloth pantaloons and strong coarse shirt, supposed to have gone to New Haven with cattle drovers on Thursday night, August sixth, 1868. Any person finding him or having him in their employ would confer a great favor on his father, Robert Cairns, by sending him a letter to 3rd Avenue near 114th Street, Harlem, New York. We now return to our program. This next short article is maybe the best summary I've seen of the phenomenon of colored Democratic clubs around the time of the 1868 presidential election, and more importantly, the media reaction to it in the North. The Southern Black Democracy The part that the Negro is to take in the next presidential election seems at last to be thoroughly appreciated by Southern politicians. Colored Democratic clubs are being formed in all portions of the country. Addresses from leading colored Democrats are scattered abroad, and an attempt is being made to instill into the mind of the Negro that his best friend is the white man with whom he has been brought up, and with whose interests he must, in the future, be identified. Alabama Last Thursday night, a meeting of colored people was held in Mobile for the purpose of organizing a democratic club. The register says, The meeting was called to order by Colonel C.A.R. Dimon, who, in a brief and patriotic address, explained the object of the assemblage and expressed to them his views in regard to their social and political status. An interchange of sentiment led to the conclusion that the colored people have at last found out who their true friends are. There was held recently at Demopolis, Alabama, a Seymour and Blair ratification meeting. Attended almost exclusively by Negroes and addressed by four white men and the following black speakers. Jim Westbrook, Jack Lee, Reuben Ryan, Sandy Cameron, William Roberts, and Jewel Armstrong. The new era furnishes the following report of the black men's speeches. But when Jim Westbrook, colored, from Jefferson, arose to break the spell and sunder the chain in which the carpetbaggers and scalawags sought to manacle his race by secret oaths and midnight gatherings in secret places, The enthusiasm of the crowd could no longer be restrained, and Jim had to proceed with frequent interruptions from the cheering multitude, but he planted himself intelligently and forcibly upon the national platform and exhorted his friends to do likewise. Jack Lee, colored, of Dale County, addressed his colored friends in a brief but telling speech, followed by Reuben Ryan, of Jefferson these speeches challenged the attention and close consideration of the crowd of colored listeners present but old uncle sandy cameron from hale gave the finishing touch to the carpet bag fraternity he told them that he was born in the south that he was a southern man and that the southern men were his friends He had yet to learn of any good to the black man that could come from these Yankee peddlers in secret politics. The southern men have never lied to him or deceived him when he was a slave, nor since he was free, that God had put him and the southern man here upon the same soil, and they must either stand or fall together. Ah, the sweet sound of That's okay, because God! Spoiler alert! You'll be hearing a lot more of that one. Where was I? Ah, yes. The old man gave them a scathing rebuke for being blindly hitched in by a set of traveling adventurers who had only leagued themselves together as a kind of ladder upon which they could climb into office, and wound up by saying that... Hugh here. Yeah, I just realized I needed some kind of signal when I have a quote within a quoted article, and I guess just doubling up on the quote dingers is gonna do it. All right, continuing with the nested quote. He had rather be lathered with aqua fortis and shaved with a handsaw, or live on pills hewed out with a axe, than to be left in the hands of such a set of scalawags. Uncle Sandy evidenced an unusual intelligence and acumen for a man of his color without previous advantage, and we would not be afraid to pit him against the best carpetbagger of the batch. Long may his gray hairs and long finger wave to point his people to the truth and their best interest. Joseph E. Williams, a Tennessee colored orator, is stumping Alabama for the democracy. Georgia. At a large Democratic meeting at Harlan, Georgia, on the 8th, which was addressed by several noted Southern speakers, a large number of colored Democrats were present, proudly displaying on their apparel Seymour and Blair badges. The following letter is from a colored man of Wilkinson County, Georgia. To the Colored Voters of Wilkinson and Twiggs, My dear friends, Feeling that it is my sacred duty to befriend my race as far as I am able, in any manner whatever, I have concluded to write you a letter, kindly advising and speaking with you in it, upon the great subject now distracting and disturbing our minds. And in this advice, I desire you all earnestly to understand that I intend to utter only what my heart tells me is the truth, and what are my honest sentiments and convictions. I want you also to understand that I have not come upon these convictions and facts in a moment or a day, but they are the fruits of actual experience for the past three years, and also of thought and observation in the course of that time, and rest assured that my eyes have been widely and eagerly open to the interests of my race and my people." Then, my friends, know now that I am a colored man, born and raised in Georgia, and have spent the greater part of my life in Twiggs County, and believe me when I tell you that I have some education, that is, I can read and write, and of course can spell very well, and am the author of the feelings and sentiments of this letter. I have this, then, to say to you that I have come out openly and boldly upon the conservative or democratic platform with our true southern white men, whom we might have and ought to have known long before this were and are our only friends. And I now say to you, my friends, that it is not only our duty to come out and go with them and vote with them, the conservative vote, but beg them and ask them to forgive us for voting with a set of heartless liars and thieves and scalawags against every principle of honor and truth. Yes, against my good and your good and the southern gentleman's interest, and for what? Ask yourselves, will you, for what? Have you got your mule? I ain't got mine yet, and they told us right here in Irwinton they was going to give us one. Have you got your 40 acres of land? Have you got your $1,000 in greenbacks? Echo answers, what's your mule, instead of, here's your mule. Well now, what do these radicals do with your vote when they get it? I'll tell you, my countrymen. They get into office, tax us, and our white friends on everything we make. And in case you didn't guess, that was your audio cue for the combination of money and race. Yep, one of the most potent and frequently used rhetorical tricks in the book. Now and in 1868, there is no better way to rile people up than by pointing a finger and saying, Hey, hey, see that other race? They're getting your tax money. Alright, resuming at the beginning of that sentence. They get into office, tax us and our white friends on everything we make, call it government money for free schools for us, and buy mules and land, and to keep up the army, to keep honest southern men from putting us back into slavery and all such lies. I thank God that I have opened my eyes to our true condition." Every white man in the state of Georgia was represented in Milledgeville in 1865, and there took a solemn oath that slavery never should exist again in the state, so that settles going back into slavery with me. This I know, my friends, and am satisfied fully upon the subject. It is my object to do all I can from this time to the November election to wake my people up and beg them to think about the matter. Think, who is your friend? Now I ask you, who is your friend? The man who proves it every day that you live, or the man who has promised to be your friend for the last three years and lied and proved that he lied to you every time? Wake up, my friends, wake up. How can you go to your old master or your employer with anything but a sneaking look on your face and ask him, please, to do this or that favor for you, when you have just been and voted against him for somebody that never has nor never will do you a favor? I'll tell you how I felt. Just as mean as if my employer had caught me stealing one of his sheep. And there was a many one that felt so, but was ashamed and afraid to own it. Now look upon these matters. All that I have said is true. I am for the conservative party, and assisted in organizing a colored conservative club in this county, and shall go on with the good work. Louisiana. Louisiana papers state that the colored democracy is alive and at work throughout the state, The Thibodeau Sentinel appeals to them as follows. Colored Democracy of Lafourche, wake up, organize your clubs, and with the aid of our good citizens go to work and secure the exercise of your rights so that in November next you may contribute in restoring peace, order, and prosperity in our land of promise. The Alexandria, Rapides, Democrat, says... It is no use any longer disguising the fact, patent to all, that the colored democracy of Rapides is now a fixed institution, alive, wide awake, in real, dead earnest, and with a local habitation and a name. Not content with the La Moth barbecue, they got up a ball, a rousing ball, on last Saturday night. They were gratified and honored by the proprietor of the Ice House, placing at their disposal the fine and large ballroom in his hotel. We must candidly admit that this element of the Democratic Party of Rapids is far ahead of any new organization we ever witnessed before in our parish— Their ball was really well got up and a handsome affair. The Iberville, Louisiana, South, says, A colored Democratic club for this precinct will be organized at the office of D.N. Barrow this evening. This movement should be encouraged and aided by our best citizens, and let the colored men who may attend be assured that they will be protected in the full exercise of all their rights as citizens and voters. A meeting of the Democratic colored men of Algiers was held on the fifth instant. Thomas P. Sherburne chairman of the Committee on Freedmen Clubs, called the meeting to order. He stated the object of the meeting was to organize a democratic colored club, and he was happy to see so many of the colored citizens present. It proved that if the colored man was allowed to act in accordance with the dictates of his mind, he would do what was right. The willingness of the colored man to join the Democratic Party proved that Democratic doctrines were more generous than those of the radical plunderers. After a few brief remarks, Mr. Sherburn took his seat amid cheers from the colored men, the meeting organized by appointing the following colored men as their officers— Riley Allen, President. William Sherburn, First Vice President. Joe Griffin, Second Vice President. The New Orleans Crescent says, The officers chosen are the leading colored men of the place and will in a short time bring a host of their friends to the support of Seymour and Blair. This club bids fair to be one of the largest in the state. Previous to adjournment, William Sherburne, the first vice president, was lustily called for by the club for a speech. He alluded to the dead issues the radicals were constantly harping about. But the triumph of the Democrats always improved the colored people's condition, while radicals robbed the country and destroyed their happiness. Carpet baggers had nothing at stake or nothing to lose. Pick up a picayune when they get a rise on and keep it when they get it and have sense to get out of the way with their carpet bags. But the colored men don't intend to let them fill their carpet sacks if they can help it. With a cheer for Seymour and Blair. (coughs) And the speaker, the meeting adjourned. Mississippi. At a Democratic meeting held at Yazoo City last week, among other resolutions adopted, were the following. One, as citizens of Mississippi, we declare that it is our purpose to confer impartial suffrage on all men, irrespective of color, and to place all men on terms of equality before the law, so that life, liberty, and property may be equally assured to all. 2. That our thanks are due to our colored friends who, actuated by a sense of justice and patriotic duty, cooperated with us in the late election in defeating the oppressive and iniquitous Constitution framed by strangers and common enemies to them and ourselves. They deserve well of the country, and their services will ever be gratefully appreciated by all men who have a due regard for equal rights and constitutional government. Three, that, as an evidence and testimonial of our esteem and goodwill for them and the value of their noble aid in a just cause and patriotic principles, and as a further token of friendship and union in support of democratic principles, we tender to them a public barbecue at this place on the fourth Saturday of August, 1868. 4. That such of our colored people who voted the radical ticket, or stood neutral, and have since renounced and joined the Democratic Party, or now wish to renounce and join, and all who entertain a friendly feeling for us and our cause, are respectfully invited to meet and participate with us in said barbecue. 5. That it is our duty, and should be the duty and pleasure of all persons, in the bestowal of employment places, and patronage to the colored people, frankly, to prefer and give the same to those who are our personal and political friends, and to cheer and animate them to lives of usefulness, respectability, and prosperity, and in no wise to give aid and comfort to our radical enemies who seek to prostrate us and liberty and give dominion to our political adversaries. 6 that we invite all good-meaning and well-disposed colored people to join the conservative and Democratic Party, and assure them, as well as all who have joined, that all their legal rights shall, to the extent of our ability, ever be respected, sustained, and protected, and that they can safely trust us to do them every justice and right in every emergency. Mississippi journals state that the colored Mississippians since the late election are going over en masse to the Democrats. In a single county, 1,000 of them have produced certificates of membership in Democratic clubs, and far freer and prouder than they ever did as the slaves of scalawag, poor white trash— A millennium of good feeling between the races in Mississippi is dawning as the result of this state of things. North Carolina. The Democratic Club of Washington, North Carolina, recently adopted the following resolutions, which a paper of that city pronounces excellent. Whereas the elective franchise is now exercised in North Carolina by all classes, without distinction of race or color, and whereas it is manifestly expedient and conducive to the success of the Democratic Party in said state, to increase its numbers by accessions from all class of electors, therefore, be it resolved, one that this club will use every honorable means to influence colored electors of New Hanover County to become members of the great National Democratic Party and will, by facts and arguments, show them that it is to their interest to vote with the party that will sustain a constitutional government. 2. That to aid in accomplishing this object a committee of three to be appointed by the president of the club shall solicit all employers of laborers or mechanics to enter into and sign an agreement in the following words to wit. We, the undersigned, do mutually agree that in the employment of mechanics and laborers we will in all cases give preference to members of the democratic or conservative party who have in their possession and present to us evidence of such membership and that when we have once employed them under the assurance that they are members of a democratic or conservative association if afterwards they should desert their party and vote with the radical party Then, in that event, we pledge ourselves that we will give such as so desert and prove false to their assurances no employment whatever under any circumstances, except in cases of most urgent necessity. We furthermore agree that this shall be binding from and after the expiration of the several terms of employment of mechanics and laborers now entered into by us." here. Yeah, that was kind of awkward, I know. It happened to be the end of that quote within the resolution statements and the end of the quoted article about the resolutions, so you had the nested quotes along with the main quotes both backing out together. Eh, what are you going to do? I think the audio cues are a vast improvement, but they're never going to be perfect. On with the article. Burton McNeil, a highly respectable colored man of Salisbury, North Carolina, is out in a card severing his connection with the radical party, declaring for Seymour and Blair (laughs) and advising his friends to do likewise. The Negroes of Hopewell, Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, have formed a Democratic club. A large number have joined it, and they have officers of their own. The Tarboro, North Carolina, Southerner, states that Sandy Long of Halifax and Eaton Robinson, both colored men and recently appointed magistrates in their respective counties by the man who writes himself governor, have thrown the appointment back in his face with disgust. Hugh cutting in here. I got curious about who the man who writes himself governor was, so I did a little googling turns out that referred to William Woods Holden, governor of North Carolina in 1865, and then again from 1868 to 1871. I'm not giving him a sound effect because this is the first time I can recall hearing about him, but I will give you a little description. This is from NCpedia. Radical Reconstruction of the South provided the perfect venue for William W. Holden to make another bid for governor. With freedmen now possessing the vote, he successfully attained his goal in 1868. In his inaugural address on July 4th, Holden called for unity to rebuild the state and for the people to accept northern immigration and capital as parts of that effort. Ah, so that gives us plenty of context for this article. Now, back to it. A radical having lectured a Wilmington Negro on account of his having allied himself to the Democratic Party, the African returned answer. Under your teaching, we have alienated from us the mass of the white people north as well as south. You have got the offices and emoluments while we have done the work and stand out in the cold. For one, I am done with you. We'll be right back after this important word from our classified advertisers. Mrs. Carrie D., formerly D., You called at my office twice. I have not seen you for twelve years. Call again. Miss May Sinclair, There is a letter for you post-restant. Mrs. B. Duggan, formerly of All Saints Well., Kings County, Ireland, send her address to Miss L.L.L., Cincinnati, Ohio. Mrs. Newcomb, please call at King & Company's, 35th Street and 6th Avenue, in reference to House in 33rd Street. Mrs. Clara Tompkins will oblige an old friend by sending her present address to Mrs. Carrie Johnston, Herald Office. And we're back. South Carolina. The Negro Democratic element has not been so much aroused in this as in some of the other southern states, but the leaven is working. Very few Democratic colored clubs have been formed, but Democratic Negro speakers attend the barbecues throughout the state and address the freedmen from the same stands occupied by Wade Hampton and the chivalry. And that's the sound effect for Wade Hampton, one of the central figures in that Harper's Weekly illustration. You're going to be hearing a lot more about him. I'm going to devote a whole episode to that guy. What's that you say? What's the deal with that audio cue? Well, I couldn't think of any other mnemonic for Wade Hampton than the sound of water. Hey, come on, they can't all be winners. On to the next article. Virginia. A Virginia freedman has issued the following address to his colored brethren. The writer of this, a colored man, made free by the late war, desires to commune with you on matters which concern your peace and prosperity, as well as the happiness of the community in which we live. We therefore desire to reason with you, like sensible men, and hope that you may be benefited by what we shall say. Can the colored race prosper in a state of strife and antagonism to the whites? I answer unequivocally, no. The whites are the majority. They own the soil and the property of the country. They have more resources. They are more enterprising and determined. The laws protect them in the peaceful enjoyment of what belongs to them. Violence on our part will not be tolerated. We must submit to the laws then we cannot cope with the whites. They represent the power and influence of the government north and south. Why should there be antagonism between the races? I answer there is no sufficient reason for such a state of things. The whites have declared no war against us. Our mechanics and tradesmen, painters, barbers, carpenters, shoemakers, bricklayers, porters, gardeners, factory hands and dining room servants have been generously patronized and liberally paid, while white men, equally competent and equally worthy, have failed to get work. Look at it calmly and tell me if we have met the good deeds of the whites in the proper spirit, what return have we made for all these acts of kindness? I answer, while living on the bounty of our white benefactors, and while pretending to their faces the greatest devotion and gratitude, we have invited among us nameless adventurers from the north, and scabby outcasts of white society at home, and secretly and deceitfully formed ourselves into oath-bound leagues, in antagonism to the interest and honor of of the very men whose kindness shelters, clothes, and feeds us. We have done all that we could do to degrade them by placing over them ignorant and corrupt men. We have aspired to rule and govern the very men who own the soil we cultivate, the houses we occupy, who employ us in the business of life, who aid us in building our churches, and who shelter and feed our families. What Folly has marked our course. What infatuation has possessed us? We have mistaken the generous sympathy of our white neighbors, their kindness and aid and their friendship, for tame submission to the demands of a few fanatical upstarts who have thrown firebrands into our once happy society. Under the lead of these wicked disorganizers, we are drawing the lines between the races. We have kindled the fires of hate. Oh, how shall they be extinguished? What claims have the radicals to our favor? What have they done to us? They tell you they restored you to freedom. The radicals have sprung up since the war. They have come into existence as a party since the war, and since you were emancipated, and of course they did not free you. The radical party has no claims on us. They are our natural enemies. They are the descendants of the men who sold our fathers into slavery, and they are now oppressing us by their unjust taxation. They are robbing us of the means of earning an honest living without benefiting the government. The adventurers who head the League and the perishing white vultures from the sinks of sin and infamy who flock into the windows of the League rooms at midnight, they are the whining skunks who use the League as stepping stones to office, and you as tools to get power and money for themselves." They are the vile creatures for whom the loyal leagues were created. They will never do you any good. Beggars hardly ever contribute much to those from whom they live by begging. My friends, I have spoken to you kindly but plainly. I would warn you. Of the dangers just before you, I warn you against the men who would receive office at your hands, and would desert you in the hour of sorest need. Turn away from such creatures, and come back to the friends to whom your minds are always directed in time of sorrow, the friends who can do most for you. Life and death are set before you. We can all live happy and proper, whites and blacks in friendship and reciprocal acts of kindness, but death and destruction loom up on the field of strife and contention. Texas. A number of democratic Negro clubs have been formed in East Texas, and colored orators, it is stated, are doing efficient work among the freedmen. At a barbecue at Independence, Washington County, the Brenham, Banner says there were at least 300 Negroes present who listened with great interest to the speeches, and many of them, before leaving the ground, declared their determination to adhere to their white Southern friends and vote the Democratic ticket. The Banner is convinced that, with very little effort, nine-tenths of all the Negroes in the state can be converted to the Democratic faith the rio Grande courier says we must counteract the teachings of the carpetbaggers and the renegades who are misleading the colored people and seducing them into dangerous paths we must show them we are their true friends and aid them in every possible manner in the discharge of the important duties they have been called upon to perform We know them better than the carpetbaggers, and that knowledge will enable us to control them more readily should we go about the matter in a proper way. We must treat them with lenience. We must win them by justice and kindness. We must teach them to do their duty as good citizens, members of society, and neighbors. A colored Democratic club has been formed at Houston, which holds regular weekly meetings. The speakers are unanimously in favor of Seymour and Blair, and state generally that they are proud of the opportunity to unite with the only party that had any claims upon the blacks, and could and would benefit their race. Speeches of Prominent Politicians Clement L. Vallandigham. You know what that was? That was the Vallandinger for Clement Vallandigham, Copperhead extraordinaire. If you want to hear more about him, follow the link in the show notes or listen to episodes 9 and 18. All right, continuing on. At a Democratic meeting held at Fort Wayne, Indiana on the 8th instant, Mr. C.L. Vallandigham spoke as follows. He would not follow the Republican Party into the discussion of dead issues. The names Traitor and Copperhead, with which that party honored the democracy, had become respectable names. He would say nothing of Grant as a military officer... But, in accepting the candidacy for the presidency, he had lost all the triumph that would have been his by thus becoming the representative of Negro supremacy. You hear that? That's the sound of racial supremacy. I'm sure we won't need that sound very often, right? All right, resuming at the beginning of that sentence. He would say nothing of Grant as a military officer, but... But, in accepting the candidacy for the presidency, he had lost all the triumph that would have been his by thus becoming the representative of Negro supremacy, taxation, military despotism, etc. He spoke of Horatio Seymour as being the representative of the old republic which our forefathers made of the Constitution, Of the Union of 1789, and the fundamental principles of the Democratic Party economy, law, equal taxes, supremacy of the white race, etc. He spoke in similar terms about the vice presidents, and surmised that the Democracy would have such an immense majority this fall that the Republican Party would be afraid to think of war. The Speaker then addressed his hearers on the great issues now before the people, claiming that the Republican Party was itself responsible for the public debt. He demonstrated how the two parties proposed paying off this enormous debt. He argued that the method advocated by the Democratic Party of managing this debt would save $18 million of taxation annually. He next endeavored to prove that the expenditures of the military department for the past three years had been far more than that of Buchanan's entire administration. Yet, on the ground of extravagance, the Republican Party had tried to turn him out of office. He argued that it was no wonder the radicals attempted to divert the attention of the people from these living questions— the payment of the debt according to its terms in paper money currency, the financial principles, etc., and in their place raised the cry of good war record. In referring to the question of tariffs, he said the collectors of the revenue were now scattered like the frogs of Egypt over the land, and as an example showing that one-half of their proceeds did not reach the department, referred to one item of expenses miscellaneous, $47 million, which argued plainly that someone had been stealing. He then proceeded to show that the Democratic Party would, when they got in power, make a great revolution in all these extravagances and protect the pockets of the laboring men and mechanics of the country. He advocated the duty of freely forgiving the rebels who had already been sufficiently punished by loss of property, etc., and who are again entitled to be received into fellowship and union with ourselves. After again warmly thanking the people of Indiana for the very cordial reception given him, he retired amid the most deafening cheers and firing of artillery. In the evening, the large courthouse square was filled with people, many of whom could not leave their daily avocations to attend the meeting in the daytime, and were now bent on hearing Mr. Vallandigham. After repeated calls and cheering for him, he was induced to come forward and make a few remarks. He was greeted with loud cheers and spoke for half an hour on the topics of the day. He gave it as his opinion that Grant was in a wrong position in stating that we want peace when we are having it, and have been for more than three years. These words were put into his mouth by a party that still wished to maintain a standing army in some sections of the country, where no voice has been raised against the United States authorities since the failure of the rebellion." And this party that Grant represents are clamorous for arms, to be distributed over the country at a cost of four million dollars. He thought that a curious way to have peace. The speaker here alluded to the military renown gained in the civil wars of Europe as going to show that it was not lasting, and that the person who expected to secure greatness in history by fostering in time of peace that hatred engendered in time of war was in error. But it became a great nation whose people are of the same race and parentage to forget in times of peace the triumphs of one over the other in their spiel of madness. He spoke in glowing terms of Seymour as a statesman and of Blair... As a soldier, and confidently predicted their election in November by a large majority. Daniel W. Voorhees. At Terre Haute, Indiana, on last Saturday evening, the Mr. D. W. Voorhees spoke as follows: Almost the entire speech was devoted to financial matters and censure of the Radical Administration. The best test of the capacity of a party, and to bring prosperity to the country, he said, is in their use of the public money. The radical party, having had the entire control of it for seven years past, must stand or fall by the record they have made. He dwelt at length on the enormity of the public debt, which, he said, is equal to one-sixth of the entire worth of the country. Other nations had tithed their people by taking one-tenth of their property, but we are double-tithed, and yet Congress gives no signs of an intention to lift the burdens from the people. The debt of England at the close of the war with Napoleon represented but one-fourteenth of the wealth of the nation, and yet it was found necessary to reduce the rate of interest to two and one-half or three percent— Could it be that a crowned head, that the King George, whom our fathers fought to release themselves from tyranny, could have more regard for the interests of the taxpayer than the government of our own country? In addition to this, the state, county, and local debts of the people will amount to as much more, making, in the aggregate, double what he named— In view of this serious condition of the country, he appeared before them, not as a partisan, but speaking for the people. It is said that this debt had been created by the war. Admitting all this, he wished the people to appreciate what we owe and what sources we have with which to pay it, and they can experience the enormous crimes of the Radical Congress for the three years, with the mortgage upon the property of every man, and even upon the six days of his labor, for this debt, one half of which had been made by robbery and fraud. The people had appealed to Congress but had got no answer. Has Congress cut off any of your taxes or relieved you in any way? He dwelt at length upon the expenses of the government since the surrender of Lee, of the expenses of the army in a time of peace, and the navy, which, he said, was as useless as a painted ship upon a painted sea. He then instituted a comparison of the expenses of late and those of years previous to the war, when the Democrats were in power. He quoted the articles of the Chicago platform demanding the strictest economy in the administration of public affairs, and then went into a lengthy denunciation of the expenses of Reconstruction. The Freedmen's Bureau came in for a liberal share of criticism as being kept up to support the Negroes in idleness. The African, he said, is the ablest and most robust laborer in the world, but the policy of Congress is to support him in idleness. Every vote for the radical party is one to uphold this policy, and a vote to make the white men of the North do work for their support. He should like to see the white laborer undertake to explain such a vote to his wife and children. "'Shall the white woman be thus made the slave to the black man and the black woman?' He went into the details of the expenses of the Bureau, the item of transportation being, he said, for hauling the Negroes about, the supremacy of the Negro having been established by Congress. The Bureau supports him in idleness, while the Loyal League makes him a riotous and dangerous citizen.' He spoke of the proposition to arm the Negro as one to secure dominion to the Negro and make the South an African barbarism, where no white man or woman could dwell in safety. He spoke of the corruptions of Congress as being utterly beyond that of former times and declared that their devotion to plunder and robbery called upon the people for a change— Some of the radicals have proposed to pay the interest on the public debt and wait for a better day to pay the principal, but this payment of interest is a serious tax. If a man owns a farm, he pays as his share every year interest on one-sixth of its value. Every dollar of tax has to come, in the end, from the laboring man. He declared himself in favor of one currency for the bondholders and the people. Let all of the bonds the 520s, the 530s, and the 1040s, be paid in the same currency as fast as they come due. This was his platform, and upon it he would stand. He declared, further, that all kinds of property must pay an equal taxation. Upon this point he grew enthusiastic. He read the fourth plank of the New York platform. That is the clarion call to the laboring millions, telling them that the day is breaking. It is the Magna Charta to the taxpayer and the Palladium to the working masses. Coming back to the Negro, he said the policy of Congress had surrendered to him a region of country more rich and valuable than any other on the face of the globe. The radical Negroes were not content with Negro equality but must have supremacy. Into the hands of a few Negroes, less in number than the natives of Indiana, is given the control of the entire South, which is given over to the barbarism of Africanism. The blacks and their vagabond white allies hold the balance of power, and the white man who does not endorse this policy is excluded from citizenship. Referring to Seymour, (laughs) cheers were elicited from the crowd, With him on the ticket is the brave and chivalric Frank Blair. His letter had been censured, and the judgment of public opinion had been invoked upon it. He, too, would invoke that judgment. In closing, he said he once more threw himself into the arms of his friends, content to be born or sink as they should decide. He acknowledged that he had doubtless committed errors in the past— but he trusted they would not treasure them up. In the fear of God, he would assert before them, his neighbors and friends, his devotion to his country both now and in the future. Historic headlines will return after this word from our classified advertisers. On the 13th of July, 1868, died at Hager the Reverend de Adolf Hopfer from Danzig, Dr. Adolf Hopfer at New York, or anybody knowing about him, is begged to give news to Dr. Theodor Fritz at Hager, Nassau, Germany, or to Theodor Hopfer, Chemist, Köln-on-the-Rhine, Hochstrasse, 55, Germany. P.O. Am out of town, but write me, as letter will be forwarded. X. William Perry the friends of William Perry of New York, who died on the Pacific Coast some years since, may hear of something to their advantage by calling at the office of Coffin, Reddington & Company, 85 Liberty Street, on 14th or 15th instant. Will the young lady in black at A. Ville Station, SS Railroad, Tuesday morning, who noticed gentlemen in early train, please send her address to Carol Wilson, Herald Office. We now return to Historic Headlines. Now this next piece is interesting because it presents a Republican point of view. And that's important because it's all too easy to lapse into the mindset of, oh, the Herald is a Democratic newspaper. It's not, not really. It bills itself as an independent. But... From a modern point of view, it's very easy to see the vile racial rhetoric that spews from it and think, Democratic newspaper. Anyway, here it is George W. Julian. At a Republican meeting held at Shelbyville, Indiana, on the 8th instant, the Honorable George W. Julian, member of Congress from the district, began his remarks with the general observation that our party platforms are very instructive memorials of the past. This is their chief value. They mark the shifting and ever-varying phases of American politics and often bear witness to the waywardness or positive infidelity of our public men. This, he thought, was forcibly illustrated in the National Democratic Platform recently adopted in the city of New York. He took it for granted that the essential truth in politics, as the builders of the platform understood it, the substance and the shadow of democracy, was there embodied. Every democrat in the United States now subscribed to this latest and most authoritative confession of national political faith. And yet, if we tried this document by the ancient tests of democratic orthodoxy, we should find it a new and a weak invention which the fathers of democracy would disown. This would be found true whether we considered the platform in its negative or its positive character. The democratic principle of secession, which had long been an article of faith, had been unconditionally abandoned. It had been settled for all time to come by the war and is never to be renewed or reagitated. But how an unconstitutional war could destroy the constitutional rights of the states to secede and sweep into oblivion the everlasting gospel of the resolution of 1798, the assembled wisdom at New York failed to explain. The divine institution of slavery... which had been sacredly guarded also by the Constitution, is likewise abandoned forever. The war which, four years ago, was branded as a failure, has settled it also for all time to come and handed it down to a common grave with its twin relic, the right of Secession." But he submitted that if both the war and the proclamation of emancipation were unconstitutional, the stern logic of pure and unterrified democracy should have demanded compensation for the slaves, thus wantonly set free. Free trade was another time-honored principle of democracy. It was not, however, even mentioned in the democratic platform, nor was the policy of protection condemned. Hard money was another great democratic principle. Everybody remembered the marshalling of the democratic hosts under Jackson and Benton in their grand battle for gold and silver and in opposition to irredeemable paper issues. No one could have doubted that the men who denounced greenbacks as unconstitutional during the war would stand by the old hard money flag after the war had ended, but there again the war was not a failure. Of all earthly blessings, Greenbacks, and in marvelous abundance, are most to be longed for in the judgment of Democrats, while gold and silver should be retired from sight, or as far from vision as possible. Kindred observation applied to the ancient democratic dogma of a white man's government. No one could have supposed it possible for a Democrat to live without teaching continually as a most vital truth the inferiority of the Negro and the dogma of political and social equality with him, but the New York Democratic platform had uttered no word on this subject, although Negroes now actually vote and may hold office in all the states lately in rebellion. This most shameless and high-handed degeneracy to saving democratic ideas and tradition had surprised the whole country and could only be accounted for by the war or the voluntary action of the southern states in constitutional convention assembled. If we were to turn from the negative to the positive side of the New York platform, we should find quite as little relief for our Democratic friends. They demand the immediate restoration of all the states to their rights in the Union, but fail to tell us what they mean by this demand and why the Democrats in both houses of Congress had unitedly voted against restoring the rebel states to their rights, save those of secession and slavery, which have confessedly perished by the war. They demand amnesty for all past political offenses when nobody has been punished or stands the least chance of being punished for any such offenses. They demand the abatement of the Freedmen's Bureau, which will expire by law on the 1st of next January, and which law was opposed by Democrats of both houses. They condemn the doctrine of immutable allegiance as to which no man or party in this country takes any issue with them. They assert the right of the states to regulate the question of suffrage, which is admitted by the Republican Party, while the demand for reform of abuses in the administration and the expulsion of corrupt men from office will be heartily seconded by every Republican in the Union, and if carried out, would at once relieve the nation from the infernal brood of Democratic thieves and villains who are preying upon its life, from Andrew Johnson, inclusive, down to the meanest political scullion and prostitute that have found favor in his sight. The speaker passed from these subjects for the purpose of noticing a still more remarkable and novel feature of this very remarkable and novel platform. It is as follows that the public lands should be distributed as widely as possible among the people, and should be disposed of either under the pre-exemption or homestead laws, or sold in reasonable quantities, and to none but actual occupants, at the minimum price established by the government. When grants of public lands may be deemed necessary for the encouragement of important public improvements, the proceeds of the sale of such lands, and not the lands themselves, should be so applied the speaker pronounced this a most excellent Republican doctrine From his earliest connection with politics, he had earnestly contended for the policy of reserving the public lands for actual settlement and tillage, and now, with the Republicans, stood ready to advocate the doctrine which he embraced over 20 years ago. He reviewed at length the Republican policy regarding the domain, the homestead laws, and our swampland legislation. He said the Democrats had always been on the side of monopolizing corporations, against the interests of those who settle on land and contribute to the development of the resources of the country. According to official tables furnished by the General Land Office, there are now in the Pineland states of the South more than 52 millions of acres of unimproved land held by monopolists, while more than two-thirds of their people are landless. And if towns and cities of those states were excluded, more than nine-tenths of their population are without houses of their own. These were the facts. If they were the faults of democratic policy... Democratic tactics cunningly employed by Southern members carried our swamp lands through a Democratic Congress, while the frightful maladministration of these lands which followed was concocted and consummated by the Democratic states. He commented severely on the language of this famous resolution and the empty and impudent strut with which it was fulminated in the Democratic State Convention and showed it to be what it really is— merely the exposition of the long-standing land policy of the Republican Party, plagiarized by the Democratic demagogues and with the other resolutions inserted in their platform for the purpose of making the people think they were honestly clamoring for the speedy reform of all kinds of political abuses. Hugh here. Now, at first blush, the beginning of this next section seems to have nothing to do with the issues we're exploring. But if you spend, oh, the better part of a year scrutinizing antebellum, Civil War, and Reconstruction-era newspapers in New York State, you'll find out that you can't overstate the political importance of the canal system. And you start to realize that canal policy is bound to political ideology. I don't pretend to understand it all myself, so I'm not going to try to explain it, but suffice it to say that canal policy has a lot more to do with race than you might think. And that connection becomes clearer the more you study the ideology of the Free Soil Party. I'll talk more about it when I understand it better. Stay tuned. Political Notes Mr. Cornell, the Republican candidate for lieutenant governor of this state, has accepted the nomination. The only point in his letter is the following. Not only has the state been robbed, but her magnificent public works have been greatly injured. Indeed, their usefulness almost destroyed, and it is impossible to estimate the damage which has been inflicted upon the interior commercial interests of the state by our ruinous and inefficient canal policy. The most vigorous measures are required to reform this disgraceful state of affairs, and although I fully appreciate the great importance of the political questions involved in the coming election, I greatly regret that the undivided attention of the people cannot be devoted to the improvement of these domestic affairs. A very unusual result in politics is the fact that the recent election of two United States senators from Georgia appears to have given satisfaction to both parties in that state. Republicans claim them as belonging to their side, and the Democrats insist that they are their property. Whatever they may be, the defeat of ex-governor Brown seems to be regarded as glory enough for one day. The jubilation of the Georgia press over the defeat of this man is something remarkable. If Benedict Arnold had been taken prisoner in the Revolutionary War, there could not have been more joy in the American army than there is in Georgia over the failure of ex-Governor Brown to capture a place in the United States Senate. General Albert Pike continues his... Peaceful advice to the people of Tennessee through the columns of his paper in Memphis. In one issue last week, he attacked the law against carrying concealed weapons as unconstitutional and void and advised the people to disregard it. To complete his day's lesson, he calls upon the Democrats to arm, organize, if you would not be massacred like helpless children. Mr. George M. Weston of Bangor, who was two years ago Democratic candidate for Congress in the 4th District of Maine, announces that, though opposed to the Reconstruction policy of Congress, he is not ready to follow the revolutionary lead of Frank Blair, and that, therefore, he repudiates the Democratic nominations. A correspondent from Florida writes to the Philadelphia Age in these words. I think the northern taxpayers, who make their living by hard labor, should know that for two months the government has been distributing free rations to the Negroes in this state. In Lyon County, where the Negroes registered about 2,700 voters, 2,666, some 35,000 rations were issued last month alone. The Radical Organ in Colfax's own county in Indiana complains that the Republicans are in a state of universal lethargy and have not waked up to the work that lies before them. The Mobile Tribune says, We must break up the Loyal Leagues, and to do this it is only necessary that the Negroes should be properly instructed, Point out to the Negroes the way they should go. Tell them that the carpetbaggers in the legislature are the veriest scum thrown up by the boiling cauldron of the late Revolutionary War, and they are a gang of political vagabonds on the prowl for plunder, and they will surely aid you in driving the unprincipled wretches from the state. Hugh here. Well, that's it, folks. With the exception of the tail end of the last column, which wasn't relevant, that was the entirety of page 4. Next time, I'll read the entirety of page 4 from the previous day. That contains those two speeches, one from Cobb, Remember, the whole thing sounds so darn democratic. and one from Toombs, that were mentioned in this article, the ones that I said so clearly delineate the boundaries of the democratic ideology? Yeah, we're going to go deep. Thanks for listening, and until next time, seek context. This is Hugh Yeaman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Tranisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, he'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease, a daring young man on the dying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please, and my love he stolen away.